Hey, everybody. We're bringing you one of your favorite topics yet again on the podcast, and that is Connecticut paid family medical leave. And to help us sort it all out, because you know this goes into effect January 2022, we've got three more months and we're there. And in fact, your employees can start filing claims as early as December 1st. They don't have to wait till January 1. So it's, it's bearing down on us. And we have a couple of great guests. We have Ben Susky and Chris Kotu from the Principal Insurance Company. Uh, they've been living this stuff for, for months now after living through it in Massachusetts and other states. And so they really, they know their stuff. Uh, this is just chock full of information. So sit back, enjoy, listen carefully. You're going to learn some stuff here. Uh, take a listen. So Ben and Chris, thanks so much for being on the, the podcast. Um, this is a hot topic. It has been a hot topic for a while and it's getting hotter as um, as the date approaches. So let's start out with this one. And Chris, I think maybe we'll, we'll direct this at you. You know, we're seeing uh, that most of our customers across the state are really just going with the state plan for 2022. Um, you know, a handful going with the private plan that have applied and been approved for a private plan, but most are going with the state plan. Is that consistent with what you're seeing on your end? Uh, yes, I think the state is uh, is really starting to pick up momentum now. Um, I think earlier in the in the in the process of of rolling out this law and building the infrastructure, the uh, most employers just said, "Hey, it's an employee contribution tax that they are going to then fund out of that we that we help facilitate the fund, but they're going to fund, and so let's just let the state roll with this, and I'll do my thing as an employer." Which is, which is, Jeff, it's a little bit different than what happened in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. um, Massachusetts had an employer contribution piece. So employers over 25 employees were, were deep in the mix with the cost of the program right out of the gate, even during the, obviously, the pre-funded period. So, so Connecticut's a little bit different. Um, but I also think employers are starting to realize there's a little bit more to this than just the law. Um, I think the Northeast in general is a very parental marketplace, meaning HR departments tend to take care of their employees. They look to go that extra step, whether it's a medical claim or a disability claim. And so they're starting to realize, hey, this stuff's all intertwined and we're going to probably have to be involved in the process to some degree. So what does that mean for me as an employer? And you know, uh, what can I do to make sure that that's efficient? Because if I'm, you know, communicating the benefits, if I'm helping to administer them, if I'm helping to track them, if I'm helping people through the claims process, I'd like to have some control of outcomes and, and some control uh, of the process if, if, if I'm going to be doing all those things to make sure it flows in an efficient manner. And I'm not tied down because if I'm tied down, that's time and money uh, towards my bottom line as an employer. So that realization, I think, is, 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 is sort of taking off over the last, you know, five to six months and really building steam towards the end of the year. And the trend is more of these laws are going to go uh, begin to develop from state to state. And there's even federal legislation uh, that, that could happen uh, to make this more of a national type uh, uh, program in, in, in the future. So if all that stuff were, were to happen, you're talking about a massive increase 
in the number of serious health condition claims and or uh, family uh, uh, leave claims that could happen. And so how do you build the infrastructure to manage that? And that's what we've learned in some of the initial states, whether it was New York, the state of Washington, or even Massachusetts more recently, is, is that volume is really difficult to prepare for. No matter how good a job you do, whether it's a private carrier or whether it's a state trying to administer, if you all of a sudden have an influx of 170,000 claims, which is the number for Massachusetts over the first six months, that's a big number to deal with. So um, I think as employers see some of the delays that could happen in the, in the turnaround times on employees getting their money and having to get involved and hear stories from other states, there, there's a building awareness of, okay, what's gonna be the most streamlined process for me as an employer? Yeah, so you mentioned the utilization. Isn't that going to vary state by state based on the richness or the generosity of the benefit that's been mandated by the particular state? And if so, how does Connecticut look compared to other states? Is it a relatively rich benefit and should should Connecticut employers expect maybe even more utilization than you've been seeing in Massachusetts or less, or how do you feel about that? Yeah, so that's a great question. And we're still learning to be to be totally transparent on it, yeah. but uh, Connecticut's probably gonna fall in the middle. I mean, benefits are similar in duration to the state of Washington, uh, which far exceeded expectations. So those claims were significantly higher. However, you know, Massachusetts has got a longer duration claim uh, uh, period. So um, their tendencies might be a little bit different as well. Connecticut, like I said, is kind of in the middle. It's got a 12-week duration on most situations. Uh, it looks and feels a lot like a short-term disability plan with the exception of really no elimination period up front. So yeah. if, it's a, if it's a serious health condition, benefits can start, you know, technically day one. Um, there are some added uh, additional clauses uh, with military leave or uh, incapacitation with pregnancy that could prolong a benefit beyond 12 weeks, but it's a relatively manageable time frame. And, um, you know, if I were to compare the data and make a guesstimate, I'd probably say Connecticut will run somewhat like expected, both at the state level and at the private insurer level. I think the big difference, though, that you have to, you have to kind of pull into your analysis is there's over 120,000 employers in the state of Connecticut. So this is a massive amount of volume that's going to hit the carrier that's taken the state program. And mm. most top 10 group insurance carriers are dealing with, even on a national level, a manageable number of claims. If you come into any sort of claims department and throw 15, 20, 35% additional volume on that, it starts to hinder turnaround time. Mm -hmm. And that's the big question is, is the claim volume gonna be so high that the state program can administer it in a timely fashion back to employers? We've yeah. seen that beyond price is the number one reason employers have come to the private marketplace in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts yeah. is currently about 55 days uh, turnaround time on a claim. So 
that's a lengthy period of time, much yeah. further, uh, much longer than, than expected. The state of Washington was up to 90 days behind on claim payments uh, in, in the first sort of six to, to nine months of rolling out that program a few years ago. So it takes time to, to gather the resources to handle the volume and to manage through that sort of initial onslaught um, that, that you know, we are very confident in because I believe private carriers, because there's multiple numbers of us out there that we can manage that workload. And that's, that's really been sort of the value prop for the private marketplace. So it sounds like what you're saying is uh, um, that there's one reason that employer might still be contemplating applying for a private plan is because their employees and, and the employer's HR team will probably have a, we're guessing they're going to have a better experience and things are going to go more smoothly with a private plan administering that, than, than others. Is that fair enough? I, I think it's a fair statement based yeah. on our experience so far. Yeah. And, and I think it can be broken down into a few components. One is the claim process itself. So if you're managing different programs around a state leave program, most private insurers will have one claim form that you can submit for all of those different programs. So for us, for example, uh, it can start with an online submission of your paid family leave or medical leave, short-term disability, and that, will, that data will be triaged into long-term disability if you stay out for a significant period of time. So you're able to manage the whole process through one single intake that the employer has access to. So from that regard, it's just far more efficient than going to two or three different places uh, to, to, to give and receive information. So, but, so why, I think what you were saying is more, there, there was more private plan uptake in Massachusetts than we've seen in Connecticut, okay? But that, but that what, what we're talking about would hold true no matter what state it is, right? That the, those yeah. benefits of a private plan. So why are, why is it that are, why are fewer Connecticut employers at this point uh, approved for a private plan than, than we're seeing in Massachusetts? What's made it, what's different there? Uh, it's a great question. So a couple things. First, with Massachusetts, the initial draw to the private marketplace was based off of cost. So the employer saw that they had money that was at stake as part of the program, because basically if you, if you average it out, it's roughly 50% on the cost for a group over 25 lives goes to the employer, 50% to the employer. So they had financial stake in the process, which really drove the market in an earlier part of the process to look to the private marketplace. Through that research and then looking into what the product was going to look like, how it would integrate with their own employee handbook, how it would integrate with their own benefits that they already existed, that they already had existing. I think there was there was a, a growing sort of understanding of wow, this could be a lot more efficient and easy for me to, to process and handle as an employer if I can keep it all in one place. So that was in Massachusetts, while it didn't drive the initial interest, it sort of drove the end interest, if you will, especially as pre-funded contributions became a far less part of the conversation, because as you get closer to the effective date of the law, obviously Connecticut, that's 
this upcoming January, but in Massachusetts, it was January 1, 2021. That pre-funded contribution didn't really matter in that conversation anymore. So this is something that's developed over time, but it's also something that was mirrored in the state of Washington. It was sort of mirrored in uh, uh, the New York when they added the PFL component. So it's been building momentum for a while and the marketplace is just learning more and more that a private solution can help streamline that. So Connecticut didn't have that initial driver financially necessarily to look to the private marketplace. So sort of jumping on this early and kind of getting the pre-funded contribution out of the way, it, it, it was less a part of that conversation. Yeah. Now, as we get closer to, okay, how is this gonna work? January 1 is just around the corner. How are my employees gonna file claims? Am I gonna be involved? All those questions are hitting right now. And that's yeah. why I say there's a lot of momentum building around this. Yeah, hey Ben, uh, do you think uh, private plans got blocked out a little bit because an employer had to take a vote and the employees had to, in Connecticut, didn't that add a layer of complexity to getting approval for a private plan? You had to, employ employees had to vote and a, mo a majority had to vote for a private plan. Was that a, did that kind of block you out a little bit, do you think? Yeah, so Jeff, I mean, that's a great point. I think, you know, what Chris says about the employer contributions was definitely, you know, a driver that's different from Massachusetts to Connecticut, right? Um, it was probably for an employer really looking at that bottom line to find out that, hey, they're contributing these dollar amounts starting the beginning of last year. That's something that really motivates an employer right off the bat. But then when you start to talk about, you know, that extra step that there is in Connecticut with the, with the vote, the 50% plus one vote that we've kind of learned to navigate over the last, you know, nine or 10 months, um, that's definitely been a factor for sure. Um, but why I do think the biggest, the biggest kind of reason that we've seen a slower um, uptake in Connecticut is really just been the information and the understanding of the law. Um, and a lot of that boils down to the communication and the understanding, um, not only by employers, but employees. I mean, we're talking about over 120,000 employers in Connecticut, a workforce of, of close to 2 million people um, that really don't know a whole much about this law other than that they see that coming out of their paycheck is that half of 1% um, of their earnings. And so I think now it was one of those things that was easy to kick down the road and, and, and you know, wait till 2022. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's, you know, we're heading into the fourth quarter here and this paid, this law is coming. Um, yeah. And we've had more information in two fronts. You know, the first, the first front is really uh, how those claims experiences have been in, you know, our neighbor state there of Massachusetts. You know, Chris talked about some of the numbers. Yeah, in the first half of 2021, they processed over 160,000 claims. They, they paid over 160,000, 100, they paid over 160 million in claims. It was a huge uptake um, and it did create some backlog where maybe uh, it would be more helpful to have a few more hands holding that, holding that bucket. Um, and then the other side of it is just realizing that, hey, you know, that private solution in Massachusetts, you know, for our employers that have gone that route, they've seen some success, they're happy with where they're at. Um, that's something that, you know, as you start to ask your friends and you start to look around at, hey, how has that been handled? It's easy to kind of look to the success stories in Massachusetts and try to say, okay, well, what can we do about, you know, getting that, getting that going in Connecticut? So is there any reason you, you said 2022 is bearing down on us? 
And employers who haven't already been, a, Connecticut employers who haven't been approved for a private plan yet, they've been collecting that half a point from their employees now for three quarters. And, um, and so would there be any reason for an employer at this point to still be considering a private plan for, 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 for January, 2022? Yeah, and so that's a reality um, that, that we do have to deal with is the fact that those contributions into the state, that into the paid leave authority, it's almost like kind of a sunk cost, right? And, and then we get into the sunk cost fallacy of, you know, just because I bought my ticket doesn't mean I have to board the, board the ride, so to speak. Um, that's money for these first three quarters that, that we really can't get back for employers. However, it doesn't mean um, just because we've kind of committed that, that we want to keep going down that road. If now these, these private options have shown to be maybe a more viable um, solution, not only from a cost perspective, I mean, for those employers that do kind of get their pre-funding um, or their, for those employers that do get their exemptions approved towards the end of the fourth quarter here, there's still time to save some pre-funding dollars. Um, but at the end of the day, we know the pre-funding dollars are only part of the story of why this might be the right move in the long run. And I think that for a lot of people, um, for a lot of employers, for a lot of employees, as was the case in Massachusetts, you saw the focus be on cost and savings. And that's why um, to avoid the pre-funding, to hop into the, the private market was an appealing option early on. But that's only part of the story. And as we've seen how this plays out from the claims administration standpoint, from a servicing perspective, from a coordination of benefits with short-term and, and uh, long-term disability and paid family medical leave, kind of mm -hmm. all being involved at some point. Um, it's been a success story that, that we're looking to you know, deliver here as a, more, as a more viable option to those that have maybe thought that you know, they're in the state plan because that was the default option. Now, would an employer, so let's say an employer says, okay, you know what, well, it's, it's too late for us to really make a move for, for January, 2022. Could an employer um, get a, a private plan in the middle of 2022, or do they need to wait until January 23? What's the, what are the opportunities for an employer if they realize, geez, we really should be thinking about a private plan? Is, is it too late? It's, it's definitely not too late and, and, you know, not to remove any of the urgency because obviously, you know, if it is the right call, you want to, you want to make that jump, but essentially that, that boat leaves the Harbor every quarter. And that was the case this year with pre-funding. We had, you know, the private market saw people file or employers filing out of the state plan quarterly. That's going to be the same case going forward next year as well. So every quarter, as long as your provisional approval is, is 30 days uh, ahead of the beginning of that next quarter, your plan goes into effect. You know, you still have that opportunity to get out um, or at least to explore another option there uh, yeah. with the private market. Um, yeah. That's something we saw a ton of in Massachusetts as well um, with groups as they saw, you know, how their peers, how their employers, how their fellow HR professionals were kind of grappling with the paid family medical leave um, that, hey, there might be another option. Um, that's something that we're going to continue to see in Connecticut, I think, as well, especially because um, there was probably a slower move to the private market in Connecticut. Yeah. What, what about the other way? What if an employer got their exemption, they're going to have a private plan effective, you know, January 1, they've got the private plan set to go. And I don't know if there's a situation where they would want to go from private to public, but can they do that? Can someone say, you know what, we want to, we want in 2023 move from a private plan to the state plan. Can they do that? And if so, are there penalties or, or what are the rules around doing that? 
Yeah, and and, and honestly, you know, the employers and the employees that kind of enter this free market where, and yes, you can come into the to private market. You have, you know, 10 plus carriers that are basically an option for you. Um, but you can also then go back to the state plan. You know, the one penalty we know for sure about the state plan is that if you had that exemption this year, so you weren't pre-funding this year, and now you, you, you were all set to go with a private plan and you head back to the, the paid leave authority, well, they're definitely relying upon those pre-funding dollars in an effort to be able to, you know, ultimately administer this plan. They're going to need that money back from, back from the employer there, that contribution that you may have missed out on. Mm -hmm. So if you want to call that a penalty or maybe it's a, a foregone contribution, that's definitely something that is a reality. But the more likely scenario would be that, you know, you're with a private insurer and maybe it's not going the way you want it to. Maybe they're not delivering on the service. Um, maybe you had a claims issue. It's unlikely that that would be a worse scenario than, than maybe some of the volume that a employer that's going through a, a state plan might be. But let's say that's the scenario where you decide that, you know, maybe, hey, you know, principal's not getting done for us. Well, guess what? You're already in the private market and you've got, you know, 10 plus carriers where you can go to and say, hey, what can you guys do to do for me? Um, I don't like where I'm at right now. We think it's more likely that any adjustments you'll see in the private market are going to be from carrier to carrier, not from carrier back to the state. I think that's yeah. really one of the benefits of going to the private market in general is now you've opened yourself up to, you know, as the employer, as the employee base, you have buying power, you have negotiating power. Um, and that's really, you know, that's the same thing with, with your medical plans and your other HR solutions and your ancillary benefits and, and mm -hmm. your dental, where it's like, look, if, if one care is not getting it done, may, may the best win, may the best fit for us. So that's something yeah. where the private market kind of holds each other accountable. And, and that's really a good situation. That competition is a good situation for an employee base. Yeah, competition is good. If, if an employer wants to go from one private carrier to a different private and carrier, do they need to re- apply for a private plan or once they've got that exemption and they've been approved for a private plan, they're good to go and, and they can make changes without any further votes from the employees and, and anything like that. Do we know that yet? Well, what we do know for sure is that a private plan approval is good for three years. So if I get approved, if I get approved to go private, I'm, I'm going with, you know, whichever um, insurer I'm going with, I'm good for three years. I don't have to renew with the state, get reapproved every single year with the state for three years. What we don't know, and this is a theme that we've definitely dealt with and that you've definitely helped, I'm sure, lead employers through, is, is, is a lot. We don't know a lot. And so my understanding would be that um, a new plan would, would probably trigger, potentially trigger um, a situation where you would have to then reconduct a vote um, or, or re, a reapply for a provisional approval. But that's definitely something that, look, if you've already kind of gone through those gyrations and, and understand really administratively how to handle that vote, something that you know we've gotten good at, something I, I know, Jeff, you've gotten good at in helping your, uh, your employers out, um, that's something that, 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 that's a better situation still to have that option than to not. Yeah, I would say you would definitely plan on a re-vote and a recertification. Um, I don't see any reason why either wouldn't be approved. Um, this is, I think, a concept that probably happens in our minds more as theory than reality. I don't think we have one account, and we wrote a lot of cases in Massachusetts that has gone or come to us saying they want to go back to the state. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're, you know, nine months into the program at this point. 
so Chris, let's get into claims, right? If you don't mind. So start, so people can start applying for, for the paid family leave benefit as of December 1st of this year. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. And where okay. these programs are a little bit different than, for instance, disability program, which employers and, 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 and consultants are very used to, is in a disability scenario, um, you have a claim, a date last worked or a claim incident, and whoever sort of owns the risk at that point when that happens, owns the plan. Where these state leave programs are a little bit different is they don't follow that date last work. They follow the timeframes of when the program goes into effect and when the person actually uh, wants to execute on the leave. So you in essence have folks that can start filing for claims in December that once the law goes into effect, they can start to exercise those, those benefits uh, which again, just makes it a little bit different than disability. Um, Massachusetts saw a high percentage, for example, of uh, claims in the month of January that was basically from stuff that happened all in previous, uh, previous time frame to the beginning of the program. So you had sort of this initial um, you know, burst of claims that came through and then it started to normalize a little bit over time uh, because you don't have that sort of, I'm waiting for the program to go into effect so that I can file for my leave. Okay, so now I wanna talk a little bit about coordination benefits. My understanding is uh, if an employer, they have paid family leave, their employees have access to that benefit through paid family leave, if an employer has maintained at the same time their, their, their STD plan and an employee goes out on disability, the paid family leave is going to pay primary, is going to pay first, and then the STD plan is going to pay secondary to that. Is that the right coordination? Yeah, so in, in, in essence, STD almost acts like a wrap plan. Yeah. around the serious medical component of these paid leave programs, whether it's Massachusetts, Connecticut, you know, uh, DBL and New York, think of it as um, on top of the paid leave, the paid uh, medical leave program. So, so what STD will do is they will offset the benefits that are paid for through the private or public or state program um, that's underneath and pay on top of that. So let's say that the person maxed out on Connecticut uh, leave and is getting you know, uh, $780 and it's a $1,500 STD max that they also would have maxed out on, mm -hmm. the STD program would actually pay $720 on top of that 780. So the total would be 1500. Now what the marketplace has done, because obviously STD is not paying that full 1500 like they would have prior to the uh, the, to the law going into effect um, is most carriers have dropped their SDE pricing by 50% or more. So you're seeing a significant decrease in the cost of STD because now it's acting uh, for, this, for, for employees in Connecticut as a almost a wraparound benefit to the medical leave component of the law. So um, that's the general coordination um, I do think that STD is very important from a, for a couple different reasons. 
Um, it, it, you know, rough math, you're talking about the state program uh, covering someone between pro probably around 65% if you average it out. And again, this is rough math of their income, and it's probably covering about, you know, 60 to 65,000, give or take, of annual income uh, uh, as the threshold. So if your employee base has a lot of folks that are making 100 and you don't have a short-term program, they're being underinsured by just mm -hmm. the state program. Yeah, they're not going to get 65% of their, their income replaced because of the max benefit, yeah. It's almost a reverse discrimination where they'll get a far lower amount of yeah. benefit in comparison to income replacement as the rest of the employees yeah. uh, that are at that 60, 65 or, or, or under. Um, uh, the other component that STD does that really sort of stands out is this, is, is if you have employees in Massachusetts and you have employees in Connecticut, or maybe you have employees in Connecticut and also in New York, by having an STD program, you can stabilize the program or level the program to where you're treating everyone if it's a serious medical condition from an income replacement perspective the same way. Yeah. So um, we found that a lot of employers, I would say 95% of the employers that we, that we uh, insure STD on in Connecticut plan to keep their STD. Yep. And Massachusetts was at that number or maybe even higher. Um, we didn't know going into this, you know, were folks going to drop off from having that, that STD program? And, and we've, been, we've been thrilled that they see the value uh, in making sure that the, the, the income replacement is fair and equal to all of their employee base and, and making sure that they set sort of a level that can be multi-state if they're, they're in multiple locations. Somebody could exhaust their PFL benefit taking care of a family member, then they have their own disability, medical disability, and they don't have a PFL benefit that year, or, or is that wrong? Where you're correct is that multiple occurrences in the PFML space is, is, is not really allowed, that the yeah. law is not written to handle multiple occurrence situations. Multiple occurrences in the disability world happen all the time, and they mm -hmm. are managed with that program. So you know, you are correct. You could have a situation where someone exhausts PFML. A blind then, squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, yeah, right? That's exactly. right. <laughs> uh, it, 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 the irony is it probably happens a lot more than people think. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's a much more frequent claim in disability than anyone would guess. Uh, uh, just because certain situations, someone exhausts their benefit, they go back to work, and then you have either a reoccurrence or they have some other kind of illness that comes up. So, and then yep. you add COVID to the mix with people getting seriously ill for COVID. It's like, we've seen numerous situations with multiple occurrences of COVID within one year. So yeah. um, the dynamic is, is, is out there and it does happen. Yep. Yeah. And for all those reasons that you talked about, I know we have been advising our clients to, to, to keep that STD policy in place. Um, you get the premium reduction to your point and, and, and it generally is the right way to go. Um, hey, Ben, uh, are, are there any non-monetary costs that employers need to be aware of or thinking they might incur, such as, you know, are we going to see, do we think Connecticut employers are going to see increased absenteeism when this, when, when the law goes into effect and uh, you know, what are you seeing from other states? Are you seeing, we talked about it a little bit, but 
uh, are we seeing employers having to deal with some increased level of, 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 of absenteeism uh, as a result? I mean, that's, that's definitely a factor that, that to be aware of here. And so, you know, let's just kind of break it down, right? This is a, a paid family and medical leave and people are essentially have the opportunity, I mean, with good reason, right? For your own medical issue, um, to bond with a, a new child, to take care of someone injured um, in the line of duty, some family violence issues as well. I mean, these are valid reasons to be taking time off and to be paid for it. But, you know, from an employer's perspective, you know, that's people that, that you've trained and, and that you're relying on really to, to kind of carry that day-to-day -day business. And if they can't do that, or if they're not around to do that, that's definitely something that um, is a reality employers will deal with. Yeah. And really what the PFML does is at least provide some kind of architecture to kind of define. Um, so why is somebody out or why can they be out? So in that sense, it kind of puts structure and definition behind um, reasons where people might be taking time off and also, you know, caps it in a sense too and manages it. And it's an appropriate amount um, based on those specific needs. The other reality is this. So we talk about the absenteeism. We talk about you know, yeah, these are opportunities for people to, to really not be working, but not feel the financial impacts of it. Um, the other reality we're going to see a ton of with is it's just another drop in the bucket for an employer, for an HR um, director or, or leader to have to really, you know, not only be aware of, but be on top of and be in compliance of. Um, that's everything from making sure that, you know, you're opting into the state plan or you're opting out of the state plan to a private insurer to registering your business. You know, some of these things that we've already seen employers um, have to navigate, you know, with with help of, you know, their benefits consultants and their HR professionals. Um, but it's just kind of another thing to put on their plate. And we're talking about people that probably don't have five free minutes in the day if you're running the business. And now you have to worry about managing and, and administering a whole nother, um, you know, set of benefits. And, and really, it's a law that everyone is subject to. Um, mm -hmm. And so what that creates is... Um, just kind of that need for that extra backroom support, right? And that can't always come internally. To Ben's point, like, I think the reality that gets lost here is that we just added an additional burden to HR. And HR now has to communicate this to their employees. They have to make sure that, that, that employees understand the process. They have to track it. Not a lot of HR person, uh, uh, departments under 1,000 lives are tracking absence at the level that they're going to have to track it. The state's not tracking it. It's at the employer level. Mm -hmm. and so there's this additional burden that's come out. And what we're realizing as a private carrier is there's a, there's a huge opportunity to solve a need for employers here. So it starts with a private plan. But as we move forward, I really see this evolving into a space where leave management is much more customized and available to the small to medium-sized customer to manage the entire program in a systematic and easy, efficient manner with the resources to back it up. Because we all know all it takes is one mishandled ADA claim and it's a million dollar, it's a million dollar expense on an employer. Mm -hmm. So it, this stuff can add up really quick. It can be financially straining on an employer. So having those additional resources to help with this new burden, uh, I, think, I think is an opportunity for you know, not, only, not only the consultants that are in this, in this space, but also carriers that are in this yeah. space to solve for their, their customers. Yeah, great, great point, great point. Okay, so we're gonna wrap it up. Before we go, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have ever actually 
listened to an episode of this podcast before, but um, I always ask a few rapid fire questions and ask and ask you guys to answer them. We want to get to know you a little bit better personally. So I guess what we'll do is, uh, well, I, I'm going to ask a question and then Ben, you can answer first. And then Chris, you can answer second. What's your favorite season? I love summer. Okay. Chris? I'll go with winter. Um, I love the, 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 the pace of uh, year end. And, and as a former hockey player, I can't, I, you know, I like the cold uh, weather. So I'm a little unique there. So. That's it. It's hockey players and skiers. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, favorite type of cake, cake flavor. Dental suit. The, the chocolate, it's a nice, rich flavor. I mean, that's, uh, that's all I need. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to, I, I hate to be repetitive, but I'm going to go with chocolate on that. It's hard to beat that. That's all right. You were opposites on the season, so you could be the same on the cake. Uh, if you could live anywhere in the world, Ben, where would you live? Austin, Massachusetts, right on the North end, get myself uh, some good Italian cooking, um, catch some good sports teams. Yeah, that's, that's where I'd want to be. And which is where you are, I think, right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Lucky for you. Chris, how about you? I'm not going to stretch uh, too far from Massachusetts as well, but I would go a little ways out and maybe make my uh, make my way up uh, uh, with the ferry over to Nantucket and settle up, settle up there. So. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, weirdest thing you've ever eaten, Ben? Um, weirdest thing I've ever eaten. I would say uh, I, I recently tried some uh, some octopus, just like tentacle, you know, where you can clearly identify that that is an octopus tentacle, mm. cutting it up. And I try to stay away from the foods where you can clearly tell like exactly what it was. Like any, yeah. you know, you see a shrimp and it's got the head still on it. It's just it's just a little too intimate for me. Yeah, um, but I would say that. <laughs> okay, Chris, how about so, you? And I can say I did not enjoy it. I love lobster, but. Um, the belly of a lobster is actually considered a delicacy, and I, I have eaten it once, mm -hmm. and uh, I will never go back again. <laughs> yeah, you talking about the green stuff? Yeah, the, 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 I think it's, it might be termed, is it tamale? or? I think uh, it's tamale, yeah. yeah, yeah. I stay away from that. I let my mom eat the tamale out of my lobster yeah, when I'm in Maine. Uh, okay. Lastly, guys, one digital's theme this year is rise. So we're all, you know, focused on how we're going to rise in 2021 after a rough 2020, uh, rough start to 2021. How, how are you, Ben, how are you going to rise in, in, uh, the 2021 going into 2022? I'm going to rise. Well, as I, as I head into my, you know, late twenties here, I think, uh, you know, prioritizing my health a little more is probably a good good move for the long-term success. So I think just, mm. just personal health, you know, fitness, exercise, eating a little better, maybe that's uh, less arancini and, and, and more salads. Um, that's probably how I'm going to rise, just kind of personal health and, and getting ahead of it. Okay. Sounds horrible. Chris, how about you? <laughs> great, great question. I think, so one of the challenges that we've all faced in 2020 is this more virtual environment, not being able to get out and see folks. And, and uh, uh, I just think for, for 2021 and beyond, I want to be as external as I can in a safe way. Uh, but uh, hopefully we continue to move through COVID and get it behind us and looking forward to just being out in market and, and in front of people and, and developing mm -hmm. relationships because the biggest thing for us at the end of the day is to, is to develop trust with our, our broker partners and customers. And there's no better way to do that than in person. 
Yeah, that's good to hear. I like that. Uh, ben, Chris, thanks for both. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Uh, while we went, we went quite, quite a ways here and got a lot in, uh, for those looking to access more resources, we've set up a portal, uh, with key information and documents from the paid family leave authority in Connecticut, as well as our team here at one digital to help keep you in the know. So you can check that out on our website. Thank you to all for listening, for tuning in. We always appreciate you tuning in. This has been yet another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits.